Good morning. I'm Alex Mosed, and you're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about all things tech, monopolies, regulation, and the sort. Um, today, we're going to talk about there's some Baidu fallout. Uh, Wall Street Journal's ragging on Baidu, even though they um, beat earnings strongly yesterday evening after the market closed and were up, I think, at least 8% um, in after hours trading. We're going to talk about the automotive space. Um, Porsche is doing some Apple Music integrations. Um, Trump is tweeting about, you know, the future of the auto industry. Well, we're going to give you our perspective on the future of the auto industry. Um, a lot of people have been talking about how Verizon sold off uh, Tumblr for $3 million. And um, we're going to talk about Tumblr. We're going to talk about Reddit, which has some similarities to Tumblr. Apple's putting $6 billion into uh, uh, content uh, in, in the um, beginning of the streaming wars here. Bad news for Netflix. We're going to dig into that. And lastly, Domino's is going in alone on delivery and not going to use any other delivery apps. Just a horrible decision. Um, so let's rewind the clock uh, onto Baidu. So yesterday we were going over Baidu, Baidu beat on Revenue compared to the analyst expectations, they beat on earnings compared to analyst expectations. And this uh, Wall Street Journal article here is saying Baidu, China's private sector bellwether, reports a 62% profit drop. I, I mean, to me, what they're trying to do here is to kind of, I guess, I don't know, just paint the rhetoric that China's in a lot of trouble and yada, yada, yada. Um, joined by Nick Johnson, co-author with me on the book Modern Monopolies. But when we were really actually looking at Baidu's earnings, they actually outperformed in just about every metric compared to where the analysts expected them to come in at. So this kind of seems just like a baiting article to me. Well, I think it, it's not looking at the beat and more looking at the performance, which is still significantly down year over year. Uh, so if you're looking at that you know, from more of a macro perspective as to what happened yesterday, then I can understand where they're getting at, which is, if Baidu is slowing down, this isn't necessarily a good sign. I think a lot of it has to do with increasing competition, though. And as we talked about uh, yesterday, Chinese government regulation, uh, and the which economy. is weighing on. Yeah, Chinese so, yeah, economy. I think, I think that uh, there's a lot of factors to it. Using it as kind of a, uh, a bellwether for the entire Chinese economy seems yep. like a little much. Yeah, well, um, so, you know, in in the automotive world, which is a huge driver of economies in general. Porsche is doing some integration with Apple Music. Um, Baidu also has uh, an, an operating system for the connected car. And in the US, we've seen a lot of activity with autonomous driving, right? We've seen Google has Waymo. Um, Ford has, um, what do they buy for a billion dollars? Argo AI. Argo AI. Yeah. And um, GM has Cruise. GM has Cruise. So, and now Ford and uh, VW are doing a JV and I guess going to try and partner up on their uh, autonomous driving tech. Tesla has been doing autonomy for a long, long time. But here's the interesting thing in the automotive space is autonomous driving is still many, many years away. There's a lot of buzz, but it's still years away before it gets here in a real way. Um, and the the key thing that these automakers are trying to do in the interim is to monetize the connected vehicle. Now all these connected vehicles are becoming 
connected to the internet and they're saying, oh, well, how can I get a piece of that? How can I let other people integrate into the car and monetize that? And the problem is that um, none of them have gotten it right. They're trying to enable, um, you know, uh, like telematics solutions, or I would say a lot of like commercial solutions, right? If you are buying a fleet of vehicles, you're Comcast uh, or you are Hertz, and now you need uh, these tools to manage where the cars are, maybe some keyless entry, you know, kind of like maintenance and repair type of analytics. Um, they're going to sell you those commercial solutions. Problem is, they can't really make any money off of those commercial solutions. They're making pennies on the dollar and they're charging for API calls. It just, there's no money there. Um, where there is a lot of money is what no automotive OEM has been able to tap into. But I think I'd probably put my money on Google being able to tap into it. So Google has this thing called Android Automotive. Android Automotive has signed up I think Honda and a few other players that are going to put this um, into their vehicles. So Android Automotive, you think of it as an operating system for the vehicle. And so when that operating system goes into the vehicle, now it's able to control certain functions in the connected car, like being able to unlock the car, like being able to report the gas mileage or unlock the trunk or unlock the, um, the gas panel. Uh, there's a lot there's a lot of vehicle data and unique data to that vehicle locked into basically that system if you're not embedded in the vehicle you're not going to get access to that uh easily and by basically taking over that entire system google basically is uh you know getting them to open the kimono right and what is google very good at every platform one of the most basic strategies that we see time and time again is technology is commoditized you give away the technology for free to get access to the ecosystem. Right. And, and exactly so exactly what they did with Android. Exactly. It's exactly what they did with Android. And I think um, what we're starting to see here is that Google's going to be able to say, hey, uh, tier two auto OEMs, here's this thing called Waymo. You don't have autonomous driving technology nearly as good as we do. Right. Um, and it's so expensive and you just have no way to get there. So we're going to give you access to Waymo. You're going to also have to use Android Automotive, put our operating system into your car. And they're going to basically subsidize this and make it very economical for these auto OEMs to sign up. Why is Google going to do this? And this is actually even separate even from the autonomy options here, right? There are so many services going into the vehicle every year. I think we looked at it. There's a trillion dollars worth of services going into the connected car every year. That could be things like gas, insurance. Now there's a couple Airbnbs for your car, Turo and get around, right? I can rent my car out and make money on the car when I'm not using it. Um, you can get a package delivered to your trunk. There's all of this functionality now that's going into the car. And there's a whole burgeoning group of people that are saying, hey, I'm at work. I'm at my desk during the day. I've got my car parked in the, um, you know, uh, building's parking lot. Could someone come and just deliver gas to my car while I'm at work? I don't need to get gas on the way back. And what these on-demand gas delivery companies are finding out is the economics are actually roughly the same to have a mobile gas truck 
come to your car and give you gas as long as they can service enough cars in a given, say, lot, um, because you don't have all the overhead associated with having prime real estate, having a gas station, having all the other things that come along with that. So the economics of this are actually somewhat evening out. And there's a few on-demand gas companies that have raised tens of millions of dollars. So not huge sums of money, but pretty decent sized sums, sums of money. And so you add all that up, you've got a trillion dollars worth of stuff, even before autonomous services come into the arena, not even including things like ride sharing, like Uber and Lyft, right? And so what Google's setting themselves up to do is to go to these third-party tech companies, Turo, uh, GetAround, the on-demand gas companies, the insurance companies, the delivery, package delivery companies, et cetera, et cetera, the maintenance companies to come and do maintenance on your car, all this stuff. And they're saying, hey, um, wouldn't it be nice if you could let your users unlock their car from your app? Would you pay us fees on that total revenue and give us a cut of the transaction if we could give you this functionality? And um, the the process is so arduous today to get access to the vehicle. Well, if, if you even can. Right. If you're even, or I mean, you have to put a lockbox on your car right. or hack into the vehicle. Right. Basically, you hack into it using the uh, ports on the vehicle to basically plug a device in that can kind of uh, mimic the kind of command and control functionality that you would want to get ideally just from the vehicle. But given that a lot of that stuff is locked down and really only in most vehicle makers kind of proprietary apps and this kind of stuff. Uh, it, it's not something that any of these companies can really get access to easily. Now, see, if you look at this screenshot here, so this is Android Automotive. Seeing this bottom left here, it's kind of cut off. Locking. This is, this to me is, is, is the money box. Okay. Literally. Um, you enable this, this connectivity around getting access to the vehicle. There's no other clearer form of gatekeeper. Literally, you are the locking gatekeeper to get into the car. And now you can say, okay, hey, Turo, get around. Hey, on-demand gas delivery companies, delivery, package delivery companies, maintenance companies, insurance companies. Um, if I give you the ability to let in your user or if I'm on Turo and I'm renting my car out to someone, I can, if I'm renting my car out to Nick on Turo and I can now let Nick remotely get into that car from Nick's Turo app and I, as the owner of the car, don't have to leave Nick a lockbox or um, go into my car's app. Or jailbreak my car. <laughs> or jailbreak my car, go into my car's app and then let Nick into the car. I mean, just think about the, the friction in those steps. Um, and the cost in some cases, if you're appending a lockbox to your vehicle, if you're at getting these basically jailbreaking devices, they're expensive. And those are the things that the companies like Turo and Get Around subsidize and send to cost, uh, the producers, the sellers in some cases. Yep. And if you could take that cost entirely out of it, then you're saving the money and that's right. something they'd pay for. And and so I'd be willing to bet that if if Google and Android Automotive can get a decent amount of connected vehicles on the road. Um, you know, they need some level of critical mass like they did with Android and the open handset Alliance. So they got a, they, well, I mean, fortunately they had the threat of the iPhone to basically get all of the other handset manufacturers on right. board. So I don't think, you know, the, the car OEMs have much more leverage than the handset manufacturers. 
But if they can still get a handful of the, the car OEMs together, pool all their vehicles together, and then give access via common APIs to third-party tech startups that are trying to deliver services into the vehicle, and then they can have a take rate on that service throughput on that GMV, it's a lock. It'll be an overnight success. And I don't know what the automotive OEMs do to combat that. Uh, I don't know. It'll be too little, too late. And they're all trying to do their own thing. You know, they're not teaming up together. What they need to do is really team up together and create their own version of the open handset alliance. They still think they're competing with each other or not competing with Google and you know Baidu and some right. of these other companies. Their real competitors are Apple, Google, Amazon, Baidu. I think Alibaba's doing some stuff in there as well. Yep. Their old competitors are their new allies. And that mindset shift has not really resonated with the leadership in these companies. The interesting thing about these car companies is actually a number of them are still family owned. Ford, um, Fiat Chrysler, Toyota, right? Uh, Toyota, um, BMW. The, the, the ownership is actually <laughs> very tightly knit. That's the irony in all of this is that these families have essentially been warring for decades right. and they all know each other. So you would think, presumably, if they could recognize the new threat, that, that they actually should be able to come together and have a have a meal, have a dinner and say, <laughs> hey, let's let's team up, guys, because there's a new enemy and actually multiple enemies in town. Oh, and by the way, they're just the biggest companies in the world. Um, it's a bit of a Romeo and Juliet situation here. You would think. So <laughs> be interesting what happens with that. So everyone's been talking about uh, Verizon selling Tumblr for $3, billion, $3 million. When they bought them for $500 million or a Yahoo, billion? Yahoo bought Tumblr way back when. How uh, much? And then 500? the the one point one billion dregs of Yahoo got bought by Verizon basically, and now that they're selling off Tumblr uh, for scraps. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of analysis, and people are saying, "Oh, you know, here's why Tumblr couldn't monetize all this kind of stuff." I don't know. My general theory on it is, it's a, it's. I actually think Marissa didn't, who who was the CEO of Yahoo during the acquisition, um. I don't think she really did much to tinker with Tumblr. I mean, I I actually probably put the ownership and the responsibility onto David Karp, the founder and at that point in time, CEO of Tumblr. I mean, it's it's his company. I think she pretty much left it alone and gave them, you know, runway to figure it out. He was with them for at least, I think, four years after he was acquired. I just don't think that they could build a sustainable business. Um and they just had problems with, I think, stickiness and and how they could really hone in on a good core transaction um, and scale the business. I think there's probably a lot of fluff in the numbers that they're reporting. They're reporting, you know, skyrocketing daily active users and engagement. But I don't know. I, I, I kind of question some of those metrics um, and how strict they were on calculating that. how much of it was kind of fake or like bots or, you know. Um, not really kind of genuine, unique content. So I don't know. You know, I think why did Tumblr fail? Because of its leaders. That's my analysis. Um, 
What's another interesting story, though, is what happened with Reddit. So Reddit um, in 2006 or somewhere around there was acquired by Condé Nast. Condé Nast makes a bunch of magazines. Um, Reddit was, I think they bought it for like $20 million. And to 20, I don't think anyone's gotten the exact number, but roughly in that range. So, you know, by today's standards, pennies on the dollar. And today, Reddit... Um, recently, so this is last summer, Reddit beats out Facebook to become the third most popular website on the web, which is amazing. I mean, it's a, that's a true comeback story. Um, because what happened was Reddit was at Condé Nast. It got stifled. Condé Nast didn't give it as much flexibility and breathing room and autonomy as it needed to really grow. What happened, though, in around maybe 2012, um, Reddit, I mean, Condé Nast is actually owned by this holding company called Advanced Publications. Um, That's a family-owned conglomerate as well. They spun it out from not within Condé Nast, because if you think about Condé Nast, Condé Nast was getting the losses from Reddit onto their P&L, and so they probably weren't too happy about that. They were probably trying to force advertising and try to accelerate monetization and stem losses, which ultimately hurt Reddit's ability to grow and scale. Also, it was just starved for resources. And yes, starved for talking about competing for budget, basically with all of the other profitable at the time yes, businesses that were making money, asked, right? And being judged by the exact same standards, and they said, "Well, why am I going to put money here?" Uh, it really wasn't treated as a startup. It was kind of brought in and then you know put alongside all the other business units, and that ended up them basically. Uh, I think at one point, really having to like beg users for money uh, so they could for continue donations. to grow. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so then they spread out under the holding company. They got rid of that pressure to, you know, basically have like quarterly earnings or, um, hey, what are all these losses doing, hurting my, right. uh, you know, my P&L for, Con- for the Condé Nast executives. They got more autonomy. They brought in um, a new CEO or they brought the old CEO back in. So they brought in the right leadership. And um, six years later, it's the top three website in the United States. So it doesn't just magically say, oh, spin it out, give it autonomy, and then the thing is going to be a success. That's not what I'm saying. But um, if you don't give these things enough breathing room and you stifle them and you starve them of resources or you try to cram monetization and ads too, soon. too, yes, too aggressively too soon, then you're basically you're just handicapping yourself. So you're not, you're not even giving them the ability. You're not setting them up for success to even have a shot at being a breakaway success. Now, I don't think Marissa Mayer and Yahoo did that to Tumblr. So that's what I'm saying. I think they did give them enough rope and runway. And then that's why it really just comes down to the leadership and their ability to execute, which I think Tumblr failed and Reddit succeeded. Um, once they were given enough autonomy and runway and rope to actually go and execute upon their vision and plan. So um, kind of two interesting stories to look at how those developed with, I wouldn't say too much support other than just capital and flexibility and runway from the core business, you know, kind of just kind of just did it on their own. uh, Interestingly enough. So Apple's spending $6 billion on original shows. Is this over the course of one year or multiple years? They're going to get Jennifer Aniston, ooh, Steve Carell. The original reports uh, months ago was that, oh, Apple's only going to spend a billion dollars, which always seemed a little bit light given their uh, service 
revenue ambitions that they've been going after for the last couple of years. So the, I think the six billion number is uh, new, but not necessarily a huge surprise for Apple. And it really shows that they're uh, investing heavily to try to you know at least take on a Netflix or an Amazon Prime and have something competitive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Netflix is spending. Um, wow, this is saying. Netflix is spending fifteen billion dollars a year. Yeah, I mean it was ten. Well, it was. I think it was ten to twelve last year, oh and then it goes, it goes up every year. I, I mean, it's just not sustainable. But here's so so Apple's trying to get to fifty billion dollars in services revenue by next year. What else is in services revenue? That is the um, take rate that they're getting from the app, app marketplace. Last I checked, was at least thirty billion dollars. Um, that might have been a year or two ago. It's iCloud, Apple Music, that kind of stuff as right. well. So it, this $50 billion, I mean, that's actually not that big of a number when you have at least $30 billion coming from the 30% that you make on every dollar spent on an app. That gives you, right? And then the iCloud subscriptions and other things like that, that your Apple Music, yep. roll that in there. This isn't that big of a delta to get to 50 billion by next year. So I wouldn't, I'm not blown away by this number of $50 billion. But the interesting thing is the $50 billion here, not not every dollar of revenue is equal um, in the sense of its margin, in the sense of its defensibility. Apple Music stuff, much less defensible, much higher cost, much lower margin. The This streaming content stuff, same story, much lower margin. The revenue from the app store, extremely high margin, extremely defensible, and has very high growth rates. It's actually probably got to be closer to $40, $40 billion these days. But um, so, I mean, to me, this is kind of a drop in the bucket for Apple. It's kind of just a little nudge so that Apple can probably hopefully crush that $50 billion number and Tim doesn't have to go back on his word. But you know, it's really just spelling bad news for Netflix, if anything, which we've seen this coming. Netflix, Disney, Apple. Yeah, AT&T. Netflix is in a tough spot. <laughs> Everyone's AT&T, Comcast. Now maybe CBS and Viacom now that they've merged. Yikes. Someone else that's kind of trying to pull a Netflix on everyone would be Domino's. And by pull a Netflix, that's not a good thing. Domino's Pizza is going it alone on delivery. So yes, Domino's has their own in-house delivery infrastructure. And yes, they don't have to pay the fees to these food marketplaces like Grubhub. And I don't know what else is in like strong in suburbia. I mean, but there's Domino's in the city. Uber Eats. Uber Eats. Um, Caviar was now uh, acquired away from uh, Square, DoorDash. I mean... The space is just becoming more aggressive, more consolidated. What does that mean? They're getting deeper penetration. They're moving deeper into suburbia. It's just going to become a more prominent part of the daily routine of the American consumer to order a meal. And and this is the point in time that Domino's decides to go off of the meal delivery apps. I mean, you should have done this five years ago. And then try to starve out the delivery apps and create your own presence and, hey, maybe actually open it up to other delivery, but, you know, and create a platform, but whatever. Um, now you're going it alone after you can see just how dominant these things are. I just, 
I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Um, what's the, the thing to me that's interesting with this is, um, it, it kind of is like what we saw with Sonder on Airbnb somewhat where you have companies looking at Airbnb and you could kind of draw a corollary to food delivery apps, right? Where if you can kind of build a brand, if you can build a like direct to the food delivery marketplace restaurant or brand, just like what Saunders is trying to do on Airbnb, where it's saying, I'm going to buy an apartment building. I'm going to retrofit all these apartments to the same quality and standards and, 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 and vibe. I'm going to list all of these apartments on Airbnb. I'm basically trying to become the hotel brand um, on Airbnb. I wonder if there's a play or if there are restaurants doing that. There definitely on are. food delivery there apps. Definitely are. You have a lot of these companies popping up that basically do commercial kitchens mm. with no storefront. And all they do is deliver on these food delivery apps. That's all they do. So they don't have to pay for real you know, prime real estate right. and locations. Uh, all they got to do is make the food and deliver it on the apps. There's a lot of these businesses starting to pop up. Yeah. Uh, and it's definitely increasing. Yeah, and just deliver a really awesome experience on food delivery. Right, and, and there, build there a actually, brand not on only food are there delivery. startups and companies doing that, there are startups popping up that are supporting the companies doing that, mm. basically pulling them together kind and say, let's commun- all... Communes, like, yeah, kind yeah. of like a WeWork for commercial right. kitchens kind of thing. There's a few startups doing that kind of thing, you know, pooling resources, bringing people together. Uh, so you know, th- this is definitely a vibrant part of that economy, and I'd expect it to continue to grow. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, well, that is everything we've got today for you on Winner Take All. We will talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for joining us.